ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Are you looking for a passive ETF that isn't so passive? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF ticker TMFC is an index fund that's filled with high-conviction stock picks from real professional analysts. It puts the 100 top-rated stock picks from the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC into one simple low-cost ETF. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Nick Gendron, Global Head of Fixed Income Index Product Management at Bloomberg, who currently powers the indexes behind some 440 ETFs globally, including the largest bond ETFs out there. When you think of something like the uh, iShares Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker AGG, but the fixed income ETF space as a whole continues to see a lot of innovation. And if you think about this, obviously, index providers like Bloomberg play a big role in helping drive a lot of that innovation. And so we're going to hear from Nick on the key trends he's seeing in fixed income indexing right now, uh, where exactly they're focusing their attention. I want to get into some background on Bloomberg's indexing business overall, because some people may not uh, know this. That business went from Lehman Brothers to Barclays and now Bloomberg. And Nick's actually been there through all three of these. So we'll talk about that. And then I also want to touch on the rise of active bond ETFs and how that might impact Bloomberg's indexing business. Should be a very interesting conversation around an area of ETFs in uh, fixed income that I still think has a tremendous amount of white space available. Now, also joining me will be Garrett Paolella, co-founder and managing partner at Neos Investments, who right now only offers three ETFs. They do have some more uh, filings out there, but they're already at around $360 million in assets in less than a year, and a lot of those assets have come more recently. They're, they're seeing a clear uptick in interest around their ETFs, which all utilize option strategies to generate additional income. They call these Next Evolution Income ETFs. So we'll uh, highlight those ETFs. I want to get into the taxation of these products, which I know can cause some confusion with the uh, distributions on options-based strategy, uh, strategy. So we'll talk about that. And then I also want to talk current financial markets as well. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Tom Hendrickson, president of Vetify, 
who will be hosting an artificial intelligence symposium in a couple of weeks. And so I thought it might be interesting to sort of preview that event, but also dive into a few topics surrounding AI. There have been several new ETFs in this space that that have come out this year. I think there's clearly potential broader impact to ETF issuers and asset managers in terms of how they might leverage AI. Certainly financial advisors could be impacted here. There's a lot of meat on this bone, so let's get into some of that right now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community one relationship at a time. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while. It has, Nate. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Vetify is hosting an artificial intelligence symposium on August 30th. So that's, what, a a couple of Wednesdays from now. And so I thought it'd be interesting to preview some of the topics you'll be covering. And then also, look, I mean, AI is clearly an area with a a lot of hype right now. It's an area that's impacting ETFs. Uh, It's impacting broader asset management. Clearly the business I'm in, right, in wealth management, I feel like there are a lot of potential implications here. And so I thought it'd be good to delve into uh, some of this. And I I guess to start, do you want to add any uh, color to that, just in terms of why Vetify believes this is an important topic to cover, enough so to host a uh, symposium? I agree. You're you're spot on, Nate. On one hand, you know, AI is a buzzword. And in some senses, it's sort of meaning everything, but in, in other senses, meaning nothing right now. But on the other hand, and I think this is where we're seeing a ton of uh, interest and engagement around how this can manifest in companies and therefore portfolios, is that this is, you know, argued to be one of the biggest technological revolutions um, in in hundreds, if not more years. Uh, You know, so you've got people comparing it to the Industrial Revolution. You've got people comparing it to the advent of fire. Uh, these are credible experts, of course. And, you know, for me, Nate, uh, you know, kind of growing up and starting my professional career, coming, climbing out of the rubble, so to speak, of the dot-com bust, uh, it harkens back to, you know, the advent of the web, uh, the Internet itself, in terms of how it's going to impact the day-to-day lives of, uh, you know, broadly society, but also the companies that operate within them, and therefore, people are taking a really hard look, I think, and, and I believe rightfully so, at how this is going to change the way that companies operate, um, how they make money, um, who, who wins, who loses, who succeeds, who doesn't. And then, of course, as we go down to the asset management world, it, there's high applicability there uh, because, because it's going to affect all of the different ways in which companies operate. And then, therefore, you know, cascading down to people's portfolios, it's going to hit people in the wallet um, if the the technology advancement and uh, ubiquity of how AI is going to change the way in which companies operate um, really manifests to the the extent it has the potential to do. So all that to be said, it's a really big deal. And at Vetify, we're always trying to listen to our audience in ways that we can add value to their lives, especially when there's money in motion. Uh, I heard on the preamble, you're, you're diving into you know the fixed income realm. We, we hosted a symposium around fixed income. Of course, that's an extremely important topic. 
And when there's money in motion, we want to be thought partners and add value to that conversation. So in a very similar vein, we thought it was the right time to uh, bring together um, thought leaders and, and folks in the space who could really shine lights on all the different dimensions through which this can affect um, people's you know, ETF portfolios, their portfolios more broadly, but even more broadly, the asset management uh, community writ large. No, I think all of that's really well said. I, I agree. It does feel like the early days of the uh, internet, and I think there are a lot of comparisons made there. And, and when you look at the performance of some of the companies behind this, uh, the poster child obviously would be a company like Nvidia. And you look this year, that's up what nearly two hundred percent. Of course, they make the chips and software powering a lot of the uh, AI tools, things like Chat GBT. But AI is really everywhere. Um, I saw over the weekend, Barron's had a cover story. And it was actually on sports gambling apps, which I'm not sure if you partake in those at all. But they noted how those apps are obviously leveraging machine learning and artificial intelligence so they can set odds on literally thousands and, and thousands of parlay combinations and, and prop bets. So uh, one small example, and obviously outside of uh, you know the business that we're talking about here, but it does feel like it's everywhere. And I, I would say if you were to list the, I don't know, the top three stories in the markets this year, AI definitely has to be uh, in that top three. Um, Tom, in terms of the interest you're seeing from investors and advisors, you and I always talk about the ETF engagement data on the Vetify platform. And I'm curious if we drill down a bit, uh, what you're seeing here specifically, like ticker symbol wise. And I guess let me color that a little bit because when it comes to AI-related ETFs, you have two buckets, right? You have one that's ETFs using AI as part of the investment process. So I think an example of that would be the Craft uh, AI U.S. Large Cap ETF, ticker AIDB, that launched earlier this year. And then the uh, other bucket is obviously ETFs investing in companies involved with AI or being impacted by AI. So a good example of that would be the Roundhill AI ETF, ticker CHAT, which also launched earlier this year. But I, I, I'm just curious, where specifically are you seeing the interest around ETFs? Is it both of those buckets, or does one stand out? So there's three things, Nate. So, so one is there's market and ubiquitous increase in engagement around all things AI. And I'll, I'll, let's get into some of the tickers and, and let's um, compartmentalize them in the way that you put them. But I would add a third, a third one that we'll also touch in. On the Vetify platform, we're also um, providing content and tools around, you know, what could be broadly described as practice management. So, you know, how advisors can build, grow, retain clients, um, you know, just ultimately run their advisory practice. We also see engagement and content around those areas about the applicability of AI within the advisor business. So I would say there's a third bucket of of what we've noticed, a, a you know, big trend and in increased engagement. Everyone is trying to figure out how they use AI in their business, and advisors are certainly no different. But then when we go back to those two buckets that you mentioned, so first off, um, you know, the 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 realm of um, ETS providing exposure to investment strategies which should benefit from um, the increase of AI or companies who are well-positioned, like you said, NVIDIA and, and others, um, those are actually a little bit, um, they've been around longer. Uh, so number one, 
but also um, that's where we've, we've seen greater engagement. So there's engagement across all three of those buckets, but the most engagement is within these um, ETFs that provide exposure to the investment strategy. So I'd give a few other tickers. So I looked at some data that, that compared uh, the Vetify platform engagement for the second quarter of this year, so uh, second quarter 2023, versus the fourth quarter of only last year, so Q4 2022. So I'll give you a few tickers, uh, Nate, to add to the mix of the ones that you framed out there. So, um, and, and there are a number of products here, and I would just I would caveat by saying, uh, as we always and often do, Nate, is that uh, you know, like all other areas of your ETF and investing portfolio, opening up the hood and understanding the nuance and differences within these these ETFs is certainly very important. I know we're not going to get too deep into that, but like any space, especially one that um, is is somewhat growing and, and somewhat nascent, uh, I think there's a there's a high degree of, of um, diligence required. But there's there's a host of products here. So Global X has an artificial intelligence and technology ETF ticker AIQ. Um, you know that's got over a thousand percent increase in that time period I mentioned. Wisdom Tree has a product called the Wisdom Tree Artificial Intelligence and Innovation Fund WTI. Uh, you know, some smaller providers like Defiance, for example, has the Defiance Quantum ETF, QTUM. Um, First Trust has a, has a product, ROBT, uh, First Trust, NASDAQ, Artificial Intelligence, Robotics ETFs. Actually, Betify has, um, as we've talked about, Nate, we, we power the, index, the indexes that power three ETFs that provide some exposure here, most notably ROBO. Um, but, but also another, um, index called Think, TNHQ. Uh, both all of those have seen more than 250% um, increase. All of those tickers, 250% increases over the time period I mentioned. Interesting. And as you ran through those, so just popping in performance, uh, I'll go through this real quick. AIQ, that's up 38% this year. WTAI up 29%. ROBT, 21%. That uh, defines quantum ETF, 28%. And then robo 18, of course, um, S&P 500 is up 18%. If you want to look at the Qs, which might be a, a better comparison, that's up 39% year-to-day. But clearly, I think performance, and this goes back to what we were mentioning with NVIDIA, that, that's a driver here. But let, let me ask you this. So is it clear? I mean, it sounds like it that you're seeing much more interest around ETFs that are actually offering exposure to the space versus utilizing AI as part of the investment process. Is that correct? It, it is, Nate, but we're certainly seeing increases in the areas where utilizing AI in, in the crafting the portfolio. And, and so you mentioned, um, you know, the AIDB fund from mm-hmm. Craft. They've also got the QRFT, um, the Craft AI Enhanced U.S. Large Cap, which that's been in ar- uh, around um, since all of the fourth quarter last year. But there's others in the space, and that, that saw, you know, over 420% increase during that time period. Hmm. But there's others like uh, the advisor shares. I, I love this. This got, it has to be in there for, you know, best ticker conversation. But the, the Let B or the advisor shares, Let Bob AI-powered momentum ETF, you know, hmm. 560% increase on on the fourth quarter of, of last year. So it, not to say, Nate, that uh, there's not interest in those other areas. 
but given the size and, and some of the um, the length of time in which some of those other products have been in market, we see more interest there on a relative basis. No, that makes sense. And I always think of an ETF too, like uh, AIEQ, the AI powered equity ETF. That was sort of the OG in this space. And I think from a an investor and advisor perspective, there's still a little bit of skepticism about integrating AI into the investment process and what that will look like or what that will mean to perform. And so, you know, investing in the AI space and in the technologies there, I think people can get their head around from like a thematic play. Integrating AI into the investment process, I I think, uh, is a little more uh, esoteric. And people, again, the proof's going to be in the pudding with performance. Uh, I I talked about this earlier this year. Bloomberg's Eric Balchuna said – integrating artificial intelligence and in the investment process. That's sort of like the next evolution of smart beta, which I agree with. But uh, he he also, and he said this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he said somebody should teach the computer to do nothing, that if AI was learning from its mistakes, it would stop trading, right? His point was that the turnover in some of these ETFs can kill performance. And look, I I know it's a little uh, sarcastic, but you know the point is I think investors want to see that Integrating AI in, as part of the investment process is actually going to result in uh, in better returns. But um, you, you mentioned a third bucket with the uh, practice management for advisors. I'm glad you, you brought that up. And I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier just about the potential impact of AI on, on even my business and the broader wealth management industry. And I'm not sure if you saw this. I mentioned uh, a Barron's article, the cover story earlier. They actually had another piece over the weekend where they talked about how firms like J.P. Morgan and uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, they're all developing AI-powered tools to help advisors do things like respond to client questions and even make uh, investment decisions. So they noted how J.P. Morgan, uh, they're developing what they call a chat GBT-like service. It's called Index GBT, where they can select securities and, and offer investment advice. Uh, they said Morgan Stanley is testing an open AI powered chatbot that would actually provide answers to advisors' questions so they can better serve their clients. So, you know, a real basic example of that might be if you want to know what the max contribution limits are to 401ks or, or whatever, you can go ask these types of questions. It'll serve up the answer so then you can provide it to your uh, to your end clients. I- any thoughts on this third bucket, this 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 combination of AI and advisors? A friend of mine, Nate, is a, has become a real expert in the space, and we actually were business partners back, um, you know, in, in the very early days of building Investopedia, and, and he runs an AI, um, a lab, and also a consulting service, and, and he, he, I thought he said it really well. The gentleman's name is Corey Jansen, but here's my take, is, and I, I agree with him in the way that he framed this. AI is not going to replace your doctor. But your doctor is going to be replaced by a doctor who uses and employs AI better than the one who doesn't. AI is not going to replace journalists. Journalists who use AI within their um, within their research process and, and how they do business are going to win and replace journalists who are not employing AI. And I, I believe, you know, we're, we're in the realm of a little bit of opinion here, but... Um, and I think that's okay, but in a very similar vein, I think that that's uh, we can we can cast a wider net in that. And it's funny, I was thinking about um, and albeit somewhat anchored to different times where we've been exposed to technological revolutions or evolutions, and and it would be akin to advisors in you know the late '90s and early 2000s who started using email, 
you know, with it, like to, to use a, a very simple example, like you have to continue to evolve and employ the, the technologies within your business in a way that's going to service your clients better, right? All, all of these, I think, are done in, in a way that it's like, what is best for the client? And like you said, whether it's figuring out, uh, you know, max 401k drawdown or contribution limits or, or other things within a portfolio, if you can do it better, faster, more efficiently, delivering more value to your client, um, I think that's going to be kind of a winning recipe and has been for the last hundreds of years of, of capitalism. So, in a very similar vein, and not to get too meta about it, I think absolutely all of those app, um, use cases are, are going to have to be employed. And I wonder for you, Nate, like are, how how are you approaching it from a you know uh, somewhat you know it's a huge uh, opportunity, but the application of it is um, can be somewhat daunting. Have have you taken steps within your practice to start? Um, utilizing AI? Well, I've definitely thought a lot about it. I think it's still so uh, early stage and where this is going, but I do think every advisor should be thinking about how this could impact their business. I guess a couple of things that would come to mind for me is the um, Barron's article that I mentioned. They were also pondering whether ChatGBT could say pick a better portfolio than advisors, which look, ChatGBT, that's not going to suffer from all of the uh, behavioral and emotional issues that can get advisors into trouble when managing portfolios, right? So you can see the potential value there. And I think if you play this out, advisors are probably going to have to show that they're constructing better portfolios than an AI-powered solution at some point down the road, right? Or else they're going to need a leverage that artificial intelligence. So I, I don't think there's any question that's where things are heading at a high level on the portfolio management side. Um, you know, digging more into the practice management itself, I think the one thing we know for sure is that uh, AI can process ridiculous amount uh, ridiculous amounts of data very quickly. And, you know, high level, they're going to be able to do, or, or these machines are going to be able to do something way beyond what a human advisor could do. And so you could see how that might help in making investment decisions or even just helping with a broader financial planning, retirement planning. Like think about processing all of a uh, client's data and then running simulations and, and helping customize those plans. So I, I can very easily see uh, the direction that might head. But, you know, I think advisors should embrace this technology. I always come back to, you know, we heard about the rise of the robo-advisors, what was that, a decade ago, and how those were going to put advisors out of business. I, I think what people forget about that is that investing in financial planning is always going to be extremely personal. And I think the advisor relationship is going to remain important because of that. I don't think AI or technology is going to change that. I just think advisors will need to figure out how to best leverage AI to to do things like, like you were alluding to. I mean, improve efficiency and help drive down costs of their business, those sorts of things. You know, how, how can they leverage AI to actually spend more time on the client relationship part, which I think is extremely important. Does that make sense? It absolutely does, Nate. And it's interesting. Um, you mentioned the, the portfolio construction piece. Uh, and I'll give you another example, like where I do think there's a good analog to asset management and, and portfolio construction, but within a different field and, and as important, if not more important of a field, but, you know, one of health technology. And so there's, there's been a lot of, um, you know, application of AI around, cancer screening and, and trying to you know, determine, um, you know, cancer diagnoses. And, and what, what's clear right now is, is the best outcome is AI plus 
human doctors mm-hmm. as opposed to only one of the other. And so when you when you mentioned the portfolio construction, I, I believe that that's where that's going. I would also concur with the fact that the power of the relationship and, and the bedrock of trust, you know, relationships, um, you know, are, are built off of trust. And I think that that's never going to go away. So I think it's a it's a fascinating time where there's both, um, you know, risk and opportunity and, and, you know, focusing on the opportunity, I think, is 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 probably where. Um, most of the cycles should be uh, should be spent. I think that there's this sort of optimistic versus pessimistic high-level debate around AI. I, I firmly sit on the optimistic side of it, how it can help um, all these things that we're talking about, but humanity more broadly. So it's it's an incredibly interesting topic and one that I'm, I'm really excited to you know be be working with and and cheering on um, a number of my peers, but also folks around the industry as thought leaders in the space to come together and shine a brighter light on, you know, using three hours of content at, at the end of the month. Yeah. So talk more about that. Just a couple of minutes left here for people who are interested in registering for the Vetify AI symposium. Uh, where should they go? And I, I should have asked you earlier, who are some of the speakers that will be participating? Yeah. So if you go to etftrends.com, we have an events drop down right there. You can go on to the AI symposium and register. Um, you, if you're on and kind of anywhere on the Vetify platform, we'll, we'll probably, um, you know, in the right way, uh, give you a chance to register for that. And so again, it's on August 30th at 11 a.m. Eastern. And so we've got, we've got a great group of, of speakers across, across asset management, you know, including, you know, some of the largest asset managers on, on the planet, like BlackRock. We've got Jay Jacobs coming in. Uh, we've got folks from Goldman Sachs, BNY Mellon, but also some of the other, you know, uh, as you'd imagine, smaller, you know, innovative shops like the Crafts, the Kaiju, Spear, and, and many, many others that are going to be um, rounding out the, the speaker lineup. But really, Nate, I think as, as we've discussed here, the, the goal and in, in a much more verbose way, I mentioned there's you know, going to be pithy sessions, but they're going to be 20 minutes, uh, 20, 25 minutes in length. And then we're going to have uh, eight or nine of them. And, and really, we're going to frame out, you know, AI as a megatrend, you know, what what's the broad application, and then hone in on some of these more, you know, vertical dimensions within asset management more broadly. Uh, how AI will change investment management, how AI impacts, you know, data-driven decision-making, the ways in which AI can change risk management, AI's potential impact on alpha-generating strategies, how AI can increase efficiency and streamline portfolios. These are all topics that we're going to delve into, technology and the role of AI in an active ETF, but also not not only uh, and exclusively within the portfolio, but some of the um, other elements of our broader ecosystem, like AI-driven index strategies, and, and how others within the broader ecosystems—you know, data providers, um, index providers, exchanges, and others—are using AI and employing it within their business to, uh, you know, increase efficiency and effectiveness. Effectiveness, all within the realm of providing a better client and um, portfolio uh, opportunity. Well, I'm looking forward to the uh, symposium. I'm, I'm hoping to actually make this one. I missed the uh, fixed income symposium a few weeks ago, so I'm going to try not to let that happen again. But a uh, really interesting conversation this week, Tom. Uh, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it, Nate. Thank you. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of Vetify. 
Because commodities indices are more likely to represent the super cycles of yesteryear than today's new and emerging commodities regime, Newberger Berman's actively managed commodity strategy ETF seeks to transcend the limits of traditional indexing, offering both inflation insurance and an emphasis on the catalyst driving today's changing economy. Embrace the road ahead and learn more about NBCM at nb.com slash NBCM. An investor should consider NBCM's investment objectives, risks, fees, and expenses carefully before investing. This and other important information can be found in NBCM's prospectus, which you can obtain by calling 877-628-2583. All ETF products are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please refer to the prospectus for a complete discussion of NBCM's principal risks. My next guest is Nick Gendron, Global Head of Fixed Income Index Product Management at Bloomberg, who currently powers the index behind 440 ETFs globally, nearly a trillion dollars in assets. And interestingly, Bloomberg's fixed income indices, of which there are approximately 25,000, by the way, they're approaching their 50th anniversary. Of course, they were previously under Lehman Brothers. And then Barclays, uh, which we'll get into. Nick is now on the line with me from New York. Nick, great to connect, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate, thank you very much. It is uh, is great to be here, and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Okay, so Bloomberg did purchase the indexing business from Barclays. What was that, about seven years ago in 2016? Though, as I understand it, you've actually been a part of this business since the early 1990s. And so I thought a good place to start might be to have you just talk a little bit about the legacy business. And, you know, we'll certainly get into how this business has evolved under Bloomberg. But give us a little background here with Lehman Brothers and then uh, Barclays. Yeah, I I, uh, joined Lehman in in 1992, and it was an exciting time for the uh, for the bond markets, for sure. And. Uh, just really started to get my feet wet there, and and uh, you know it, it you know Lehman is really what uh, really you know brought our index business into prominence, and of course with uh, you know uh, Barclays taking over Lehman in in uh, 2008, that was a um, uh, we j- just absorbed the business from us uh, uh, there, and I you know became a Barclays employee, and we kept the uh, the tradition moving along. Uh, there at Barclays, and of course, as you mentioned, August 2016, uh, Bloomberg came in, uh, bought our index business from Barclays, and uh, you know we've been thriving over here uh, ever since for for now almost seven years. So it's uh, it's been a great run so far. So right now, as I mentioned, there are 440 ETFs using Bloomberg indices, and that includes some of the most popular bond ETFs out there, ones that track the AG, the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index. Uh, Give us some more color uh, on the overall ETF usage of Bloomberg indices right now. Yeah, that is definitely where it started. You know, our our flagship brand is is the AG, and uh, back in 2003 was the launch of the first ETF against the, the AG. Obviously, there's been a few... Uh, others that have followed suit using that same index, but you know, the AG is really uh, you know the flagship brand of our business, uh, investment grade, uh, broad markets, um, you know, across governments, corporates, uh, securitized debt, and um, certainly, you know, that's that's where you know that's where we put our stake in the ground, if you will. But I think 
the key to our to our you know sort of uh, diversity across the ETF spectrum has been you know our ability to uh, to execute on a number of other asset classes as well, whether it's EM, whether it's high yield, inflation, uh, municipal bonds, convertibles. Um, and certainly uh, the global aggregate as well that came into prominence in the late 90s, basically the U.S. aggregate, but uh, for about 28 different currency markets. So, so truly a global investment-grade benchmark that has been uh, uh, picked up in, in popularity quite well uh, over the course of the last 20 years. So I mentioned at the top of the podcast that fixed income is an area of ETFs where there's been a lot of innovation recently and you know if i take a step back clearly index providers such as bloomberg play a key role here and so i'm curious from your perspective what are some key trends you're seeing right now like when you think about innovation across the fixed income space what are you seeing where is that heading yeah, I mean, if you again, if you look at the ETF market, it, it feels like you know, it's almost like when you look at in general, everything's been done. You think, but there's always innovation around the corner. Uh, that's what's kept me in this business for, for, for so long. It's it's been exciting that way. But I would say that as far as putting your pulse on the trends, um, certainly the, you you can't ignore uh, how uh, sustainable uh, investing has has come into prominence. Uh, it does. Um, it is much more of a trend in Europe uh, overall. I mean, you've seen assets grow to almost 100 billion uh, overall in sustainable type investing. Whether that's sort of focused on green bonds, whether it's focused on uh, you know carbon intensity or, or sort of decarbonizing type strategies, which are really um, uh, aligned with the the, the Paris aligned uh, initiative. Uh, uh, in Europe, so you've certainly seen uh, that, or whether it's just based on you know uh, ESG type of, of factors like ratings, um, ESG ratings. So uh, you've seen it pretty widespread. Uh, again, they they brought in uh, over 20 billion uh, already this year, uh, and and again, definitely a trend. Uh, that we're seeing our, our, our teams are quite busy uh, continuing to work on sustainable initiatives for, for the market. I, I think uh, another thing, Nate, if, if, if I look at the fixed income market, is probably one of the most interesting times in a long time. We're coming off of uh, 2022, which by far was the worst performing uh, year for the bond markets by multiple, multiple times. Uh, investors aren't used to seeing their, their investments down 10 to 15 percent uh, in fixed income, but uh, that's, what, uh, that's what happened last year. And now you have a, an environment where rates are, uh, you know, rates are really attractive. Um, and and uh, what we're seeing here is, is really focused on things like fixed maturity indices where um, you know, an ETF will offer a, a, a very specific maturity year, let's say 2028. It's a five-year investment. They're meant to be held to maturity. And if you hold the ETF throughout its maturity, you can lock in yields of about five and a half, six percent right now. Of course, they're corporate bonds, so nothing's for free there. But, um, you know, you get a nice diversified set uh, of corporate bonds as opposed to just investing in a single 
uh, issuer that might uh, incur more risk. So we're definitely seeing that type of, of targeted uh, type of products get out into the marketplace. Yeah, and that's an interesting category to me. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of momentum there where we're seeing advisors and investors really build out laddered portfolios, uh, just given the rate environment we've been in. And those uh, fixed maturity or defined maturity-based products can be very effective tools for that. I, I'm curious, going back to your comments around uh, ESG and, and sustainable bond indices, you know, from my perspective – I feel like ESG has lost some momentum on the equity side of the equation, and we don't have to get into that. But it sounds like that's not the case or that's not what you're seeing on the on the bond side. I find that interesting. And I do think, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, that uh, you know, sustainable initiatives, I think when you talk about green bonds, to me, those are much more tangible to end investors in terms of how they're moving the needle here on things like climate change. So it, it makes sense, but it, it sounds like clearly you're still seeing a lot of momentum on the fixed income side. But any thoughts on sort of the interplay there between the equity side and the fixed income side? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one. I mean, I guess, you know, the, 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 the thing is you are seeing a lot of uh, news and press out there about, um, you know, uh, whether appropriate disclosures have been made to, to various funds, et cetera, et cetera. I think it, it, it is an, uh, an area where people are starting to, to tiptoe around a little bit more. Uh, a lot of press around, you know, um, you know, sort of what data sources are being used, uh, et cetera. But uh, equity fixed income, that's an interesting dynamic. I would just say that perhaps uh, ESG in, in equities is, is a lot more, um, you know, it, it was it was put out there quite a long, uh, quite much longer time ago than it was for fixed income. And I think you're really just seeing um, this uh, this growth over the last I would call it four four years or so, where issuers are are really starting to say, okay, this has been done on the equity side. How can we do this on the fixed income side? And more and more data is becoming available to allow investors uh, to to be able to focus on that. And um, you know, again, we're we're right at the the forefront of it in, in trying to uh, to help clients out with all their their initiatives on that front. Okay, so uh, ESG or sustainable, you, you mentioned the fixed maturity-based indices. Before we move on, any other areas that you would highlight just in terms of uh, clear trends you're seeing across the Yeah, something? I mean, yeah, you just mentioned, I mean, again, more, you know, fixed maturity, that, but you also see more targeted segments, things like focus just on an investment in maybe a six-month duration or a two-year duration or a 10-year very specific duration, which is different than a fixed maturity Um um, you know, type of product because the fixed maturity rolls down. Uh, you're, you're seeing a, a bit more targeted type of um, exposures being put out there, whether they're duration based, whether they're sector based, uh, whether they're ratings based. And I, I think it's yet to be determined how um, you know advisors and the rest of the market uh, tap into those to, to manage their uh, their clients' exposure. But this is definitely a, a trend that we're seeing um, crop up. You know, as I think about trends in fixed income investing, I think a clear trend we've seen over the past, say, two or three years is the rise of active ETFs, actively managed ETFs. I would love to hear your take on, on that, given you are an indexing veteran, right? Uh, so do you view yep. this as a good thing? Is it a bad thing? How, how might this impact the indexing business? 
Yeah, I always, I, I'm always keeping my pulse on the, the number of active ETFs launched, and I, I don't think we could probably stop the, the momentum there. I think, first off, the, the, the reason that, that I see that, that you're seeing this is because of the, the popularity of ETFs as a vehicle, and therefore, um, many, uh, you know, professional uh, fixed income managers out there, asset managers, are getting more into the space and they're getting into it not by not with passive ETFs they're getting into it with active ETFs so players that don't you know have not been traditional players on the ETF side but have been big players either on the mutual fund or or another uh, front and really where their their MO is active investing they're getting themselves uh, out there and launching products and and, and so from my side, as a passive, um, you know, as a as an index provider, yeah, that trend, um, you know, probably not all that helpful from a from a, a an index licensing standpoint. But I think it just really helps fuel the the um, you know the acceptance of ETFs as a vehicle. So I think that's a good thing overall, where you have more players uh, in the space, more products out there uh, to choose from. Uh, active ETFs still represent only about 10% of the market, although uh, if you look at, you know, launches over the past, even if you go back to 2022, um, there's been more active funds launched versus passive funds. My, my count on the fixed income side was 134 active versus 103 passive. That was as a few weeks ago. Um, but their, their growth passive versus uh, active is about the same percentage uh, about you know somewhere around 10 to 12 percent so it's um, it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic for sure uh, but you know again I, I think it's unavoidable and inevitable I, I think that's really well said and I, I love that point you know as somebody in the ETF space uh, whether we're talking about index based products or active products, the more offerings that are out there, the more solutions for end investors' portfolios, the things that can get investors interested in utilizing fixed income ETFs, that's a good thing for everybody. Uh, it, it just you know increases the size of the tent that everybody's under. So I, I, I think that's a great point. Um, yeah, and we've, we've had big active ETFs out there for, for the U.S. Ag for a number of years uh, now. There's a few out there. They've done reasonably well. Um, but again, not even not even close to the assets on the passive side. It's probably a cost type of thing for sure. Nick, just a few minutes left. If we yeah, sure. Yeah, if we sort of zoom back out, obviously, when I think about the indexing business, there are some huge players. It's sort of like the ETF industry where it's pretty top heavy, and so I'm curious how Bloomberg attempts to position itself in order to compete in that environment. And I, I know there are a lot of factors here, but what might be a few areas you would highlight in terms of how you stay competitive here? Yeah, I think these days, look, we, we've we've kind of accomplished the hard part, which is we we got into this business early. We've showed our dedication to it. We've never let our foot off the accelerator, and we've you know, we've got a really broad suite of indices that clients can engage us on across pretty much every fixed income asset class. So how do we prevent, you know, the competition from, from gaining on us or how do we compete? And there are really, you know, solid players in, in, in this space for sure. So we have to make sure that we're continuing to innovate around our platform. 
that, you know, because most of the solutions that clients are looking for these days are some sort of customization or, and they're getting more and more complex, whether there's some optimized solutions that are being thrown in there, um, use of more data sets. We have to be able to onboard those very easily. So it's, it's a flexible platform. It's, it's, um, giving the distribution that clients need more content. Let's say on the Bloomberg terminal, we've, we've really uh, increased the available uh, content of our indices on the terminal uh, over the course of the past um, few years. And, and obviously we distribute through many other platforms. We have global teams. So I think that's important. Uh, global product teams across Asia, uh, Europe, and the U S here, and, and just continuing to innovate and stay close to our clients. I think, all of these seem like buzzwords, but, you know, our business is continuing to grow. And, and as long as clients see our dedication to this business and continuing to be uh, extremely uh, good at what we do, we're not going to give them reason to, to change. Well, Nick, again, really uh, great to connect this week. A very, very interesting insight. Uh, I, I kind of look or like looking underneath the uh, hood a little bit and talking about indices and things that power the, uh, again, the industry that I'm in, I think is really, uh, really fascinating. Thank you for joining me. Nate, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks very much for the opportunity here. That was Nick Gendron, Global Head of Fixed Income Index Product Management at Bloomberg. The future is fast approaching, and artificial intelligence is positioned to fundamentally change not only society, but financial advisory. Join us on August 30th for Vetify's AI Symposium, where experts and thought leaders dig into AI and explore its potential impact. Go to etftrends.com slash webcasts slash artificial dash intelligence dash symposium dot com to learn more and register for the event. I'm now joined by Garrett Paolella, co-founder and managing partner at Neos Investments, who currently offers three ETFs, about $360 million in assets. They've done that in less than a year, which is uh, pretty impressive. And if you look, much of that growth has actually come here recently, since about late April or uh, early May. Uh, Garrett is now on the line with me from Connecticut. Garrett, welcome to the uh, podcast. Thanks, Nate. Happy to be here uh, and appreciate the opportunity. All right. So I thought, let's do this. Uh, your two most popular ETFs, the ones that have been driving the bulk of interest uh, this year, are the NEOS S&P 500 High Income ETF, ticker symbol SPYI, and then the NEOS Enhanced Income Cash Alternative ETF, ticker symbol CSHI. Why don't we briefly go through those? We can certainly touch on the uh, third ETF, and then I do want to get into why these are resonating, and we, we can get into the financial markets as well if we have time. But first, take us through those two ETFs, obviously two very different ETFs. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Nate. Yeah, two very different ETFs. Um, but as we think about our overall product suite in these two, we're trying to give investors uh, the ability to espouse their market views on risk, on income, um, and to fit their kind of core asset allocation. So SPYI is our uh, the NEOS S&P 500 high-income ETF. Um, 
it first fully replicates the underlying ownership of the S&P 500 equities to give you an equity exposure. And on a monthly basis, we're adding a laddered covered call strategy using S&P 500 index options. Uh, and we could touch base on why the index option a little later, but they are more tax efficient than other options out there in the marketplace, like equity options or, you know, synthetic or OTC options. So uh, the plan behind the product is to deliver a high monthly income. Um, it targets uh, approximately between 10 to 12% a year, so about 1% a month in distribution, but it's giving you a equity-like exposure to where it would complement the equity part of your portfolio or something where you have equity dividends, uh, maybe you have REIT positions, um, something where you're willing to weather more of like an equity-like volatility to get that above average um, or significantly above average uh, income. On the opposite end of the spectrum with with CSHI, uh, which is the NEOS uh, Enhanced Income Cash Alternative, we wanted to create a product that gave um, you know risk-adverse investors a, another tool in their toolbox away from where you might invest traditionally in like ultra short duration bonds or maybe money markets. And what CSHI does is it's long uh, one to three month treasury bills. And the reason we chose them are because of their tax efficiency. So regardless of uh, where you live in the country, you're exempt from state and local taxes by owning treasuries. And then we deliver a um, an option-based overlay using, again, S&P 500 index options that targets between 1% to 1.5% a year of additional income above whatever your treasuries are yielding. So we're seeing treasuries uh, on the three-month end right now, uh, roughly about 5.5%, you know, and then we're adding an additional 1% to 1.5%, but it's meant to complement your low-risk um, kind of ultra-short-duration bond or, you know, cash alternative uh, part of your portfolio. All right, and then the third ETF is the NEOS Enhanced Income Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker symbol BNDI, which I love the uh, ticker symbols you have, by the way. But uh, briefly explain that one. Sure. So that one uh, is giving you exposure to to core or aggregate bond exposure and then taking that same uh, type of strategy that we have in CSHI, meaning out-of-the-money put spreads, and we're looking to generate between 2 to 2.5% a year, so CSHI, lower risk profile, um, one to one and a half, and then BNDI is giving you core bonds plus, you know, two to two and a half percent. So, Garrett, if I just think about this high level and, and, and I were to summarize these and tell me if I, I have this right, SPYI, that's clearly an income play where you have S&P 500 exposure. And then with CSHI and BNDI, you're looking to provide income above what investors might get from the uh, one to three month T-bills and then the aggregate bond market, respectively. And, it, it, you know, as I look at that, all of that sounds great, but I'm curious, what are the downside risks here compared to the underlying exposure? Maybe you can start with SPYI and then we can get into the other two. Sure. Um, it's a great question. I think that's one that we focus on mostly with investors. Um, is really, of course, what's the risks associated with the possible reward or return. Um, So for SPYI, being in any type of a covered call strategy, you are at some degree selling away your upside participation in the equity market to generate that current income. We do try to mitigate that through laddering the calls. So we sell multiple call strikes um, all out of the money. And then we also tend to not write on the entire portfolio, 
but your biggest risk is really not that you've already taken the equity risk and the income generated would would buffer the downside um, in an equity market, but it's really more over a longer period of time you do give up some of that upside participation in the equity markets uh, to be generating that income. On CSHI, our uh, enhanced uh, cash alternative, we are using S&P 500, so an equity underlying exposure option. The reason we do that is because of the tax efficiencies that index options provide. And so as we think about all of the products that we've been talking about, we're using the index options because they deliver a 60-40 tax treatment, meaning any gains or returns generated by the options are taxed at a 60% long-term capital gains rate and a 40% short-term. So we want to always use a tax-efficient investment instrument, regardless of what product it is that we're bringing to market. Um, we also want to look at the S&P 500 because it's the deepest and most liquid market out there. And then thirdly, as we think about pairing an kind of an equity option with a fixed income product, they tend to have inverse correlations. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are times when that doesn't happen, uh, but generally when you look at using um, equities and fixed income, those offset each other. So we're able to, in times of you know um, equity volatility, you know earn from the fixed income, and in times when uh, you know equity markets are good, but fixed income markets you know might not be as much, you're you're able to earn more income from from the equity options. But your downside risk would be in either the cash alternative or the uh, core bond, you know that a significant and quick equity market sell-off could have you detract from, you know, the performance that you'd receive from the underlying fixed income because we'd have a, a potential negative return from a very negative equity market. No, that makes perfect sense. And then obviously, if you had an environment, really an environment like last year, where you have a meaningful decline in the S&P 500, and then you have rates significantly pop, I, I would assume that would be the environment that these would be you know, the worst performing um, environment, correct? The worst uh, worst performing environment would be like a COVID, where you'd be down okay. twenty to thirty percent of an equity market, like very quickly. And the reason why is our models on the fixed income side, we rebalance and roll our options weekly. So September was a really good example for these products um, and looking at our performance. To where if you looked at CSHI, you were generating uh, an annualized kind of two hundred forty basis points from the uh, from the fixed income from the treasury, so about twenty basis points a month. The S&P was down over 9%, and we actually only lost six basis points on the options because it was a more prolonged downturn. So we kept rolling the options you know, further and further out to mitigate risk. So 2022 for us actually wouldn't be a terrible market environment. You know, but more of a COVID type scenario where, you know, within a month you're down 20 to 30 percent, you know, and there's really not much anyone's going to do besides actually sitting in cash in that. So um, we would think, you know, the, the, the sharp significant, very quick, um, you know, sell-offs are where you're going to see more of a detraction or um, an underperformance from, from those two products. You've mentioned the term tax efficiency several times throughout our conversation, and I, I do think it's an important aspect to these strategies. And, and you touched on the 60-40 long-term, short-term treatment of the options contracts themselves, and we don't have to get into all the weeds. But what I'm curious about is whether you, you can describe the return of capital distributions versus the other types of distributions from a tax perspective, because I do think that causes a lot of uh, investor confusion. 
Yeah, so we've been doing this a really long time. Um, our team here were some of the early earliest pioneers in the option-based uh, ETF products. And so we think about creating investment strategies about what is the net after-tax return for investors, either total return or these, you know, the heavy distributions you're receiving off of these types of products. And so we do a couple of things. In, in our investment products, we look to use that index option that I referred to before where 60% are long-term capital gains and 40% are short-term. The next thing we try to do is when possible, if we could tax loss harvest within the investment product and we're able to offset the distributable um, income from the fund via matching that with a historical loss in the portfolio somewhere, then we get to deem our distributions as a return of capital. And for us, we actually feel the return of capital is a very favorable element to investors. And we're talking about return of capital that's not looking to return principal. It's mm-hmm. looking to take your investment gains and your returns and convert them into a very tax-efficient distribution. And the way uh, we look at it is that that return of capital is not taxed in the current tax year for investors, but it reduces the cost basis in the fund over a longer period of time. So if the investor chooses to sell the fund in the future and reallocate, they at least are getting long-term capital gains treatment, you know, from the underlying return that they've received, getting it into the most tax favorable structure. So we think about this return of capital, not as maybe people had historically when they just don't generate enough total return in their fund or income to be able to meet the distribution and they slowly get their own principal back. We really think about um, the tax classification of the return being able to be converted to a return of capital so it's not taxable in that current year for investors. I thought that's an excellent description there, um, Garrett. Hey, just a few minutes left. Any quick thoughts on the markets right now, whether on the equity side, uh, fixed income, or or both, anything in particular standing out to you right now? And feel free to frame this in the context of your ETFs if you'd like, but uh, any quick thoughts? So, yeah, my quick thoughts are, I think, uh, and we're starting to see a little bit back today, I think volatility is still here to stay. Um, I think we've had a great recovery from the 2022 lows and what we witnessed last year. But I don't think we're out of the weeds yet on just overall volatility. And so I think whether you're more positive on the equity markets uh, coming into the end of the year next year, you know, or we've talked to a lot of investors that are still very cash heavy in their allocations, I think no matter what, um, using volatility um, as an asset class to help support your asset allocation and, and whether to get paid to wait or um, it, we look at our products as a way that you can generate that additional income using volatility um, as a positive in your portfolio, whether you like to be very cash heavy, whether you're looking to start to get longer duration and looking at kind of core bonds and aggregate bond exposures and that kind of six, seven year duration you know, or you really like to be in equities for the longer term, but you'd like kind of some belts and suspenders around that, but getting very high tax efficient income along the way. Um, My personal view is that, you know, volatility is going to be here regardless whether, you know, you think we'll end up with a soft landing or a potential hard landing, um, you know, and and use that volatility now, at least in the short and longer term, you know, to your advantage, um, you know, within your portfolio. Well, Garrett, congratulations on all the success you're having thus far. I I love seeing it. Certainly hope that continues. Thank you for uh, joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. It's been a pleasure uh, to meet with you, and um, uh, thank you for your audience for listening. That was Garrett Paolella, co-founder and managing partner at Neos Investments. 
That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, BNY Mellon Investment Management. If you would like to learn more about BNY Mellon Investment Management's suite of ETFs and for important disclosures, including prospectuses, you can visit im.bnymellon.com. Next week, I'll be joined by BlackRock's Rachel Aguirre. She's head of U.S. iShares Product, and we're going to discuss some of their recent launches, including their new large-cap value ETF and their new buffer ETFs. And then Parabola's Philip Hanks will spotlight the Parabola Innovation ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.